And so today we're going to talk about how do I satisfy my soul? Because different people look at different things to satisfy their soul. And there's this, this is kind of our launching off verse today. 3 John isn't a book most people read, honestly. It's sort of back in the back of the New Testament. It's at the end. It's little. It has just one chapter and a few verses, and it's not very long. But there's this interesting text where at the introduction of the letter, he's sort of praying for the people who received the letter. And he, he says, dear friends, I pray that you may enjoy good health. Kind of like we wish people, you know, hope you're doing well. And that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Now, let's just, we're going to do a little experiment here, just, just for a second. Look, look to the person next to you and ask them how their health is. Because this is what John says. So go ahead. How's your health? Go ahead. How's your health? Good? Okay. Now ask me, ask me. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, now, now, now. Um, ask the person next to you, how's your soul? No, no, I get to ask you. Are you sure? You look good. Excellent. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it easier to talk about your health or your soul? I, I mean, really, it, as you get older, you got lots to talk about with your health. I've got this pain, I've got that pain. In fact, I love this quote from Andy Rooney. I've learned that life is a lot like a roll of toilet paper. The closer to the end you get, the faster it goes. Uh, that makes sense to some of us that have been around a while. So th there's this, this idea that it's easy to ask about our health, not so much about our soul. And then the notion is, well, what does that mean exactly? To ask somebody, how's your soul? And so we, we'll go to stuff we do. Uh, are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? The, the problem is, in Jesus' day, there were some folks called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were great at reading their Bibles. They were prayers. They didn't pray. They, they kind of prayed and thanked God that they weren't like other people. There was a little bit of a, a narcissistic sort of punky prayer. They, they, but they prayed. They, they were really good at reading Scripture. They were really good at prayer. They're just, their souls we're messed up. So let's review a little bit of what we talked about last week just for a second because I want us to remember kind of what we're talking about, the soul. You'll recall the elements of personhood. You have a will. You get to choose yes or no to things. You choose paper or plastic. I mean, you choose. It's your choice. Burger or, or fish. I mean, you, you get a choice or, or neither. You know, you can choose. You have a will. You also have a mind, and it kind of refers to your thoughts and your, uh, your feelings and your emotion. And then you have a body where your will and your mind get to, this is your little kingdom for the most part. You choose what you will and won't do. You choose what you will think about and won't think about. And then the soul sort of integrates all of these things, your will and your mind and your body. I heard a great uh, example or kind of a, a great analogy your soul is sort of like your computer's operating system. It integrates different things to function together. Now, our problem is sometimes our will is overpowered by our body. Uh, we, we get addictions. We get addicted to things. And we know we shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't have that third Big Mac. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't look at that. I, I have a will. I know what to do. And yet, I don't always do it. 
It's kind of, I take comfort in the fact that Paul, who was this great Christian, in Romans 7, he says, there's stuff I know to do, and I don't do it. And there's stuff I know I shouldn't do, and I do it anyway. So it kind of gives me a little bit of comfort. I'm not the only one. Now, when biblical writers are talking about the soul, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes they do it in third person. Let me give you a couple examples. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Or, why are you in despair, O my soul? As if sort of like, it's like a different entity. It is, it is this important, it's the most important part of who you are, it's your soul. Now, let me tell you a story. Um, when I was a youth, probably 17, 18 years old, I can't remember exactly, but our youth group, uh, you know, we were from Kentucky, so my, my youth group took a trip to Cumberland Falls. It's a huge waterfall in Kentucky. I think it's the second largest fall behind Niagara Falls uh, in the eastern United States. Beautiful, just a beautiful place to hike, and it's it's. It's just wonderful. We went in spring, and so the water was ice cold, and we were hiking. And as young people are wont to do, especially boys, we were climbing on stuff. And there was this massive boulder, 40, 50 feet tall, right next to the water. Sort of, you have land on one side, this big boulder, and then Cumberland River on the other side. And we climbed to the top, me and my buddies, and I, I've got one friend named Mark Atwood. Um, he's still a friend of mine, although this, after I tell you this story, uh, it took me a while to get over this. Anyway, um, we get to the top, and I'm kind of looking over at the water, and Mark says to me, this is something men are going to understand. Mark said, you can't go down that side. Like, oh, no, you didn't. I mean, it's out of that moment, right, where you're not the boss of me, Mark Atwood. By golly, I'm going to go down that side. I'm going to show you that I can go down that side next to the river that's ice cold. And so I start to climb down this boulder. I get about halfway down, and then I look, and there's really nowhere to go other than water. So Mark was right. At this point, you kind of swallow your pride, and you're hoping Mark has gone, so that when you climb back out, nobody sees it. That's kind of my hope. There's a little problem. Uh, it's called gravity. So I'm on the side of this rock, and I'm, I'm halfway down, and I try to climb back up. But I've got, you know, my Chuck Taylors, uh, all the tread was off of them, you know. I didn't have any tread left, and, and I'm trying to climb back up this granite boulder on the side of, <laughs> next to the water. Now, uh, gravity took older, uh, over. You, you've experienced this, and I start to slide. Now, I'm kind of gripping. It kind of reminds me of those wily coyote things. I'm, I'm gripping, and I mean, I'm sliding and gripping, and I can feel like the skin coming off my fingers. And, it, and I'm, at some point, you resign yourself to the fact I'm about to hit water. Water is inevitable for me. Now, so now I'm, I'm calculating. Okay, how deep can it be, right? I mean, I'm really, how deep, how deep can it be? It's right, really. Here's this rock, there's the shore, and I'm out a little bit, but I'm not out that far. How deep can it be? And so I sort of, I just sort of chill. It's like, I kind of do this on the way down. I mean, it's like, it's going to hit water, but I'm going to get my ankles wet. You know, it's going to splash up on my pants, and I'm going to, you know, kind of, I'm going to have soggy feet walking back to the bus. How, how deep can it be? Well, uh, as I go into the water, I'm expecting to stop, and when it got to my knees, and then my waist, and then my shoulders, 
And when it got over my head, it was deeper than I thought. It was colder than I thought. If, have you ever polar bear plunged? I did it before it was popular. I, I invented it, actually. So I get in this, I mean, it is so stinking cold that it, it just, it's like somebody gut punches you. You have breath. And I remember coming out of the water as fast as I could. I grabbed hold of something, the first thing I could grab hold of, and I pulled my knees up to my chest just so I could breathe. It was that cold. And, and the point of the story is this. That was, it was deeper and more daunting than I anticipated. And, and our souls are, they're deeper than sometimes we think. Now, I'm a pretty happy guy. I try to, you know, I, I enjoy life. Uh, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. It's kind of my theme verse in life. I enjoy having a good time. But I know this, the soul is deeper than that. Uh, sometimes you have to kind of just get serious. So here, here's a truth that we need to understand. The soul can do God and the soul can do not God, but the soul can't do shallow for very long. Because something's going to happen in your life and, and God's going to get your attention and you're going to lose a job or you're going to lose a loved one or you're going to have a relational meltdown and something's going to happen in your life and before you know it, you're going to realize how deep your soul is. Because you can kind of be entertained and, and you can kind of live loose for a while but events in life sort of bring us back to the reality that our soul is deeper than we think look at this verse i will make my dwelling this is god speaking of his own soul super interesting over 20 times the bible talks about god's own soul i will make my dwelling among you and my soul god's soul will not reject you i'll also walk among you and be your god and you shall be my people the soul, even God, has this amazing thing called the soul. And we use the word soul. Last week we talked about, we've sort of substituted the word self for soul, but soul has a depth that the word self just doesn't convey. Now, what's super interesting to me, as I've been studying this, when, when the Bible talks about the word soul, it really uses, well, let me, I'll show you the word. The word is nefesh, nefesh. Um, used 755 times. You almost always see the word soul as it relates to a craving or a hunger. Um, the, the Hebrew mind, they're very literal. And so they would talk about uh, my soul hungers or my soul thirsts because, in fact, the word nefesh is sometimes even translated stomach or mouth because you're, they, they were literalists. They, they were showing you the, uh, it's a striving after something look at ecclesiastes better to be content with what your eyes sees than for your soul to constantly what's the word crave more better to be settled better to be um uh satisfied content there's an old testament story in genesis of a guy named shechem and shechem has a desire for dinah in fact uh, it, it says his nefesh craved her it's a horrible story his soul is not getting along very well. His nefesh sort of gets away with him, gets away from him. Now, in our day, we'll talk about words like obsession. We sort of use therapeutic language because it makes us maybe more comfortable. But, but the soul is this precious little thing that can easily get 
off and we can crave the wrong things. And so today, we're going to talk about what, what do we do to satisfy our soul? You may never hear anything more important in all your life because people are searching for their souls to be satisfied. So, so let's just sort of jump into it. In order to pursue soul satisfaction, number one, I've got to acknowledge and confess that I have chronic dissatisfaction. The word chronic, you know what that means. I, it, it is kind of constant. Look at this verse in Habakkuk. Habakkuk isn't a, a, a prophet that we look at much, but look, something is not right in his soul. Wine betrays the proud man who is always restless. He has a big appetite. It is like the deep, dark pit of the dead. Like death, he is never satisfied. We, we see it all the time in people, that this dissatisfaction. Um, take work, for example. Uh, the, the vast, vast majority of people don't enjoy their jobs. They, they don't like what they do. The great theologian Drew Carey, you've heard of him, right? Drew, Drew Carey said, you hate your job? There's a support group for that. It's called Everybody, and they meet at the bar every night. That, uh, we, we sort of just hate our jobs sometimes. Forbes magazine did a study of the happiest jobs and the unhappiest jobs. Just real quickly, kind of talk amongst your neighbors. Guess which is the happiest job out there? Go ahead. Just take a second. Happiest job. It's not preaching, by the way. I'm going to show you just in case you're interested. Okay, top five, top five. Recruiters, uh, full stack developers. It has something to do with pancakes, I think. Um, research assistant, loan officer, executive chef. Now, what's interesting about this, I mean, kind of look at the list just for a second. Um, these aren't the highest paying jobs. I mean, they're, they're okay. They're, they're good jobs. They're not the highest paying jobs. In fact, a resource assistant, you're not even in charge. You're just helping somebody that's in charge. Uh, executive chef, you're serving somebody. Loan officer, you're serving somebody. A recruiter, you're matching up somebody that needs a job with somebody that has a job. Uh, full stack developers, that, that has to do with uh, computer programming, I think. And, and you get to see a, a job from start to finish, and you get to complete it. And there's satisfaction in the work that's completed. Here, here are the worst five, by the way. Telemarketers, hotel and motel clerks, restaurant food prep and wait staff. By the way, think about that when you go to lunch today. Uh, I mean, waiters and wait staff... Uh, will tell you that Sunday is the worst day because church people are jerks. It's really sad. They most of them don't want to work on Sunday. We we're uh, demanding and we leave bad tips. What what a great testimony for Christ, right? So think about that. They don't like their job anyway. Uh, it, it's a tough it's tough work. Um, Aircraft cargo handlers. I don't know why that wouldn't be too great. I mean, you get to be out in the sun. It's beautiful. And um, maids and housekeeping. It, it's, it's interesting to me. Look at this text. There is nothing better than to enjoy good food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. The, the greatest thing you bring home from your job isn't your paycheck. It's your soul to find satisfaction in your work, then I realize that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Now, let, let's just think about this text just for a second. 
There's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and your job. But sometimes, because of our job, what do we do? We hurry because we don't have time to enjoy our food and our drink. Sort of cyclical, if you think about it. So, we're going to do, you know the Bible, you, the Bible doesn't say this, but you've heard this expression, confession is good for the soul, you've heard that, right? We're going to have a mass confession right now, okay? So, I'm going to give you some categories. And if you've ever been dissatisfied, if you've ever found yourself to be a little cranky about this or whiny about this, then at the end, we're all going to, ra- or we're going to raise our hands if this fits you. So let me read the categories. <clears throat> if you're ever dissatisfied with your work, uh, that you're married, that you're not married, uh, with your car, with your house, with your body, with your boss, with your neighbors, with your pet, with your relatives, with your clothes, with your appearance, with your team, with your teen, with your hairline, with your waistline, with your bottom line. If you've ever been dissatisfied with any aspect of your life, I want you to raise your hand. Look around. What a cranky, whiny bunch of people we are. Good grief. Now here's the truth. I want to give this to you. The truth is the soul is incapable of satisfying itself. We try. We think, hey, this next thing, this next gadget is going to make me happy. This next movie is going to make me happy. This next relationship is going to make me happy. The soul is incapable of satisfying itself. It's also incapable of living without satisfaction. That's why so many people struggle. But here's the big idea, and this is huge. You were made, uh, you were made for soul satisfaction, and you'll only find it in God. You were a soul made for God made by God and made to receive satisfaction only in God. That's why so many people are just so dissatisfied with life. Let me show you another verse. Because your love is better than life, my soul will be satisfied as with the riches of food. The psalmist has come to the conclusion that that being chronically dissatisfied really isn't helping him very much. And that when he develops a relationship with God, that's where, when he develops this this relationship with God, that's where he finds true soul satisfaction. So number one, we have to admit that we're sort of chronically dissatisfied in life. Number two, oops, went too far. Number two, we have to practice surrendering my need to always get what I think I want. Look, Look at what Jesus says on this. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. See, here, here's, in other words, let me, let me, one more. I'll never achieve soul satisfaction if I make the goal of my life achieving self-satisfaction. If I'm always trying to please myself. There's um, another wonderful song. I mean, this is a good one. I like this quite much. Look at this. Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. Again, this is the psalmist, he's gotten there. I have calmed and quieted myself. <laughs> it, in the, aren't those beautiful words? Because so many times I find that I'm not calmed and I'm not quieted. Uh, I've calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, when you're weaning a child off it's mother's milk. There's something that you do. It's called strategic disappointment. 
you strategically disappoint this child so that the child learns that it doesn't always get its own way, that there's something else, there's something actually that's better. See, dissatisfaction isn't the worst thing that ever happens in your life. Uh, Facing hardships really isn't the worst thing that you ever go through because in, in the disappointment, you're developing character. There's this really dangerous theology out there that says, I'm always supposed to be healthy. I'm always supposed to be wealthy. It's nowhere in Scripture. We're always supposed to be healthy. We're always supposed. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. I mean, from the lips of Christ to our ears, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I love the way Rick Warren puts it. He said, God is more interested in your character than your comfort. He's more interested in making your life holy than he is making your life happy. In the process of holiness, though, then you understand what real joy is. When you develop a character that reflects God, you understand what real joy is. A couple of summers ago, I had the privilege of conducting a wedding in Lexington, Kentucky, for a a kid that... um, he actually, I had known him from when we lived in Clovis, New Mexico. He's now like a sports anchor in Lexington. And um, he was getting married, and he asked me to do the wedding. And so Miriam and I drove down, and we were at the wedding. And, and so we saw some of our friends from Clovis. We hadn't seen them for quite a while. And um, so one of our friends said, hey, uh, I'm, I talked to so-and-so, and we knew who that was. And, and he was talking about, you guys, and he had really nice things to say about you, about you both. And I'm thinking, well, I'd like to hear that, especially the part about me. And so this person, this lady, starts to talk about, you know, this is what this fellow said about Miriam. She, she's elegant and, and full of grace, and she has a quiet strength, and she's gentle, and she's like a d- deep river. She's simultaneously calm and, and powerful. And, and everybody around her is just better for being around her. And, and all that's true. It's like, okay, okay, but what about me? And then she says, and Joseph, about you. He says he likes the fact that you work within your limitations. Um, have you ever wanted to smack somebody? I mean, really, really you want to smack them? You know, in the love of Jesus. Slay them in the spirit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to be known for working within my limitations. I want what she was getting. You know, we're, we're hyper competitive. Look at this cartoon. I, I, I just love the notion that sometimes we get quite competitive with one another. Now, Dallas Willard, brilliant Christian thinker, uh, passed away a couple years ago. He wrote a book, um, he wrote several books, but in, in one of his books, he, he challenges us. I just want to read this to you because, really, if, if we could do this, it would really change the way, change the way we live. It would change the way we do life. Willard says this, If you want to really experience the flow of love as never before, the next time you're in a competitive situation, like around work or relationships or whose kid uh, is the highest achiever or looks or whatever. Pray that the others around you are more outstanding than you. 
more praise and more use of God than you. Really pull for them and rejoice in their success. If Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would be filled We're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is God's design for us. And while it is quite difficult, our soul satisfaction isn't built on victories, accomplishments. It's built on developing a character that looks like Christ. Let me go to number three. In order to pursue soul satisfaction, I must, number three, realize that my soul is more satisfied when it's less, less preoccupied. I've got too much of me going on that I'm not going to be really, really satisfied. Look at a couple of texts here from Isaiah. Come everyone who thirsts to the waters. There it is again. This imagery of being filled physically kind of goes with the soul satisfaction. Come he who has no money, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in richness. Turn your ear and come to me here and your soul will live. God says the wrong approach to soul thirst is through human achievements. Like we got to do stuff in order to be happy with our lives. Look at this. Soul satisfaction is not about me acquiring the right stuff, the right things. It's about me acquiring the right soul. My, my, my soul is what's important. In the Old Testament, it was never, uh, in, that, in that era, it, it was never taught by any culture that you put yourself in another person's shoes. You looked out for number one, you conquered, that's the way you had success, that's the way you proved who, what a big person you were. And yet, in the Old Testament, you see these words. God says to his people, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feeling of a stranger, for you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. There's this notion that we put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And this week, we should begin to... Remember that every encounter we have with every person that we encounter is an encounter with someone who has a soul. The people you like and the people you don't like have a soul. The people you agree with and the people you disagree with have a soul. White people, black people, brown people have souls. Republicans, Democrats have souls. They, when we start to look at... I was reminded this week that fans and UNC fans have souls tiny crusty tepid little souls but they're still there still there if we could get to the place where every conversation we had when when people disappoint you people driving in the left lane have souls as hard as it is to believe. They're sinners, and it is sin, but they have souls. We have to remember this. When, when you place an order in it and you're dissatisfied with what you've received or the service, 
Those people have souls. And you getting your way or you having your say is much less important than their soul. These people are precious. Every person to Christ is precious. And therefore, to us should be precious too. Which leads me to the last point. In order to pursue soul satisfaction, I've got to know that the ultimate issue in the universe is not my satisfaction, but Christ's satisfaction, God's satisfaction. In Luke chapter 12, let me read a little bit to you. Jesus tells this story. This guy has great accomplishments. He has a windfall in life. And then Jesus tells this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then we get to verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. He's, this is a financial term. There's, there's a day of reckoning coming. This soul that we think is ours, that we try to please ourselves all the time or most of the time, is really God's soul. And someday there's a day of reckoning. In Psalm it says, my soul thirsts for God for the living God, where can I go and meet with God? Someday we get to. And let me show you one last verse. At Gethsemane, Jesus actually says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One day your soul comes due. One day we end this existence and we enter the next. And our soul is carried to God. We have an encounter and it's interesting, the word in the Old Testament that's used about an, an eternity apart from God is abusos, from which we get the word abyss, which means deep and dark and empty. And someday, we are going to leave this life. It's, it's inevitable. We all have that. I mean, it's not that gruesome to talk about because it's going to happen. In fact, if you're not prepared for it, it doesn't make any sense. To not prepare for the inevitable is sort of kind of foolish if you think about it. And someday we're going to stand before God. And you have to kind of, well, you, you should begin to think about what is that reunion going to look like? What's that going to look like? This week, our daughter Mallory came home. She's been in Michigan all summer. We haven't seen her for a couple of months. And she pulls in the driveway, and she opens the door. And we can't wait. And as a dad, I watch my, my wife. Embrace my daughter. I, I just, it was this kind of holy moment. 
And I knew this part of the sermon was coming up, and I thought, when I get to heaven, I, I hope. that I receive that same reception. That Jesus holds me in His arms. Kisses my neck. Tells me that He's glad to see me. That He's proud of me. Our soul was made for so much more than just this. Cars and homes, jobs, and money, food. Our soul was made by God, it was made for God, and it was made to find satisfaction only in God. Father, we thank you that we were reminded today that our soul is on loan that we have a responsibility, that we're called to not self-satisfaction, but soul satisfaction, and that we can only find that in our developing relationship with you. Father, this week as we encounter disappointment in hard times, I pray that we can be reminded that these things help mold our character. They're not to be avoided at all costs. They're to be learned from, and they're to be... Um, gotten through with your help. We thank you for those learning experiences and we pray that we might grow, uh, that our character might deepen because of them. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that even Christ understood what it meant for a soul to be in despair. And I ask God that you would develop the characters, the character in us that when that day comes, when we meet you face to face, that it will be a rejoicing time of homecoming. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.